Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Hi, Michelle Martin. Guess what? WhatsApp just granted users the ability to do something we all wish we could do when we change our minds, realize that we've typed something and it's meant for somebody else. You can now edit your sent messages on WhatsApp within 15 minutes after you hit the send button. The feature is going to be rolled out globally in coming weeks. So breaking news there. Ryan Huang sipping a pina colada on a beach somewhere. But joining me now to break down all the market action is Yep Jun Rong, market strategist with IG. Good morning, Jin Rong. Hi, good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me again. Always good to speak with you. We start here in Singapore where there is a tale of two banks. So the two banks in question are the largest in Southeast Asia, both forecasting significant growth, but one is talking up opportunities in China and the other appears more bullish on India. So who are the banks in question? Which one is focused on Beijing and which one on Delhi? I hope you have at home have had a moment to think about it. Junrong, tell us who are the two biggest banks in the region? Yes, so uh, I mean, if we look at based on a total assets, the biggest bank in Southeast Asia is clearly a DBS, which is ranked number one, followed by OCBC in second place. And of course, you know, UOB is ranked in third place as well. All right. The headline that caught my eye about OCBC is that it is betting on China's post-pandemic, post-zero COVID policy to grow its business and in particular its wealth management business. So what do you think of this strategy? Yes, I mean, if you look at China to OCBC, I mean, OCBC has long established its presence in China. So they sort of have a niche there Mm. in terms of its brand name and also regional presence. So I think China will be an important growth catalyst for them. I mean, considering that there have been recent concerns that, you know, DBS and UOB are actually expanding their presence more aggressively across the region through acquisition as compared to uh, OCBC. So in a way, our investors are expecting uh, OCBC to kind of step up their game. And I think OCBC does have the firepower for acquisition. It's just that they have not uh, put it much to use yet, Mm -hmm. uh, potentially waiting for opportunities on that front. So China will be one of the key growth factors for them to depend on uh, to sort of lean on in the meantime. And in terms of exposure, I mean, as of end December 2022, if you look at the OCBC's assets in Greater China, Mm. it's around 16 to 17% of its overall. And in terms of net loans, it's actually more than 20%. So I would say there is uh, some significant uh, exposure uh, to China businesses and also our economy there. And I think the catalysts are also intact for them to tap on, right? I mean, looking at many of the China's uh, multinational companies, Mm -hmm. I think they are increasingly pursuing this uh, China plus one strategy whereby they are diversifying their investment into other parts of Asia outside China. Mm-hmm. So that will be a key growth engine for OCBC to tap on. It's a great point. I just want to add to that. OCBC has been positioning itself to provide support to Chinese companies with business interests in ASEAN. OCBC also owns a 20% stake in a bank in Sijiang province, the bank of Ningbo. Okay, I want to switch to DBS now. It has set a $10 billion earnings target for itself over the medium term and it's forecasting a 20% jump in profits from last year. Now, to achieve these goals, DBS is focusing on wealth management as well as global transaction services and treasury market sales. So what do you make of this strategy? Yes, I mean, uh, it's a very promising uh, target from DBS that was being laid out by its management. I think whereby the bank expects to achieve uh, earnings of you know more than $10 billion 
uh, in the medium term. And in a way, I believe uh, it's achievable. If you look at 2022 uh, full year profit, it reached uh, 8.2 billion. So for now, it will be really a question of how DBS can tap on its original presence for growth after turning to you know various acquisition over the past years, uh, such as in India, Indonesia, and also uh, Taiwan. And I think from the recent earning results, uh, DBS has gathered for its net interest margin to sort of sustain at elevated levels. So that could continue to provide somewhat of support for its net interest income. But probably we'll need to see more recovery coming from uh, other areas, uh, such as the wealth management income, so that you know it will be more of a broad-based recovery in its businesses that we are talking about. And I think that could still take some time, uh, considering that economic outlook has not uh, been supportive for now. But overall, it's a promising target for the longer run. Mm. And uh, we know DBS has been a stable dividend uh, play for one's portfolio. So oh, in yeah. a way, hopefully, you know, that translates to more dividends uh, for shareholders. But we'll have to wait and see about that. If you've just joined us, this is Market View. I'm Michelle Martin and my guest today is Yep Jun Rong from IG Markets. As I mentioned at the top of this segment, while OCBC is focused on China and DBS is looking to India, which is now the world's most populous country, even if its economy is usually seen as lagging behind its neighbour to the east, DBS owns a bank in Tamil Nadu called the Lakshmi Vilas Bank. Okay, Jun Rong, what do you think about uh, DBS's India strategy? and its importance to DBS's overall growth. Right. So in a way, um, India is definitely one of the key markets for DBS, I would say. And uh, with reference to previous guidance just from the IMF, I think uh, they mentioned that China, both China and India will generate about half of the global growth this year. So there are definitely huge potential to tap on. And looking at the recent uh, resilience in India's uh, economic conditions, I think there's a reason uh, that we see why it's important for DBS at a time when you know, other countries are actually seeing greater signs of weakness in their economy. And previously, uh, DBS has reviewed you know, uh, some exposure to Adani Group, so mm. the exposure is there, and uh, that is just one. As you mentioned, there's also taken over an Indian bank with you know, $336 million back in 2020. Right. So India clearly comprised uh, part of their, uh, you know, much of their growth strategy to sort of expand their presence uh, across the region, considering that it's a high growth but also a larger size of market to tap on. So things uh, seems to be promising there. We'll return to DBS and OCBC during the up or down segment. So keep this discussion in mind now, listeners. I'm going to turn from banks to property and real estate investment trusts. S-REITs have been making headlines with new acquisitions and a relatively robust first quarter performance. Of the 32 S-REITs that have reported earnings recently, 23 are reporting improvements in their top lines. So what do you make of the S-REIT, the sector's performance so far this year, General? Yeah, so Tasha, so if we look at the performance for Ashri, I think uh, you know there could be expectations that is being priced around the impending a uh, rate pause from the Fed. Mm. So I think that translates to some uh, sort of renewed traction uh, back into Ashri, and I think you know rate uh, rates being a uh, rate sensitive, they are seeing some uh, catch up performance uh, since the start of the year. So year to date, I mean, if you look at the FTSE Singapore REIT index, is up five uh, percent, uh, delivering a dividend yield of five point nine percent, which is relatively uh, attractive. So the the positive performance is there. Uh, but looking at the fund flow data from the SGX over the past month, I think what we are looking out for is whether you know institutions are actually uh, coming back in into these uh, REIT sectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, for now, it does seem that you know net institutional outflows over the past month may have eased 
Uh, but for now, we are still not seeing that significant uh, strong inflows are coming back for that sector. And it does seem that the you know, much of the part of the buying still seems to come from uh, retail investors uh, for now. So hopefully, it, um, you know, once the, the Fed shift towards an impending uh, report process, uh, we could see some uh, renewed traction uh, coming back from the institutional side as well. Now, one concern facing REIT managers is the value of the REIT's assets. Now, while most Singapore REITs are still upbeat about their business, about three quarters of companies in this sector are reporting declining asset values. On top of that, nine Singapore REITs have reported a negative outlook. That's nearly one out of every three REITs. So which type of REITs are underperforming, Junrong? Yeah, so if we compare the uh, REITs by uh, sector, mm-hmm. uh, maybe i talk about the top performers first. I think the greater performance seems to come from industrial and logistics since the start of the year, uh, potentially with some optimism being priced for the uh, delayed reopening across the region. Uh, but the underperformer for the REITs are, are those that are exposed to you know, other geographical locations, such as in the U.S., uh, where we are seeing, you know, uh, REITs such as Prime US REIT delivering a negative uh, 30% return year to date, whereas the uh, Manulife REIT is down, you know, more than 30% as well. And if you look towards uh, other REITs with a uh, significant exposure to other regions such as China, um, they are not performing as well too. I mean, if you look at Dustin uh, Retail Trust, uh, EC worried, uh, those have been sort of underperforming. So I think in a way, uh, economic growth in those areas uh, play a part as well. We know that you know we are starting, starting to see more downside surprise coming in from uh, economic data from those countries. And that you know potentially translates to the lack of traction uh, in terms of the rate performance as well. Now, it seems that a number of companies in the sector have gone on a buying spree. The latest example, Capitaland Ascendus REIT, which has bought a high-tech facility from Seagate for about $220 million. Some $2 billion worth of properties have been acquired by Singapore REITs so far this year. What do you make of this trend? Yes, I think if you look at the trend of uh, acquisitions, uh, comparative to previous years, I think it has uh, toned down slightly. Uh, looking at the 2023 acquisition, so far I think momentum has eased, uh, but I will still say it's still strong considering the uh, economic outlook that we are looking at. Uh, so far, there are a total of five acquisitions this year. Mm. And if you look at the acquisition, uh, there is a trend in that the acquisition are largely done by the stronger brand names. So we are seeing names such as a Maple Tree Logistic Trust. Uh, we are seeing, you know, Fraser Center Point Trust, and just earlier this week we have, uh, you know, Capital Land and Center's uh, REIT. So these uh, REITs are uh, tends to be those with a stronger sponsor name. Uh, they are more well capitalized, and it seems to be a divergent story for the REIT sector, whereby it is these stable and well capitalized REITs that manage to sort of still pull ahead with growth amid the current uh, environment. And looking at some of the gearing ratio in terms of uh, whether they have further room for acquisition. I think it's still healthy in general. So that means that, you know, if lucrative opportunities uh, were to arise over the coming months, uh, we may still see uh, more acquisitions that coming from this uh, larger need. Great stuff. Let's turn to regional markets now. Yesterday, we talked about Hong Kong and Japan. Today, I want to turn our attention to Thailand and India. A little over a week ago, opposition parties in Thailand scored a stunning victory at the polls. The Move Forward Coalition has a clear majority in the 500-seat House of Representatives, but it still needs to win over support in the military-appointed Senate if it is to form a government. The Thai market 
has been the worst performing market in Asia so far this year. It appeared to get a bit of a boost after the elections, but Thai investors are clearly still on edge. The SET is down more than 8% since January. One investment house that is keen on Thailand is UBS. It's named Thailand as its pick in the region. What is your take on the Thai market, General? Yes, I mean, uh, clearly it all revolves around the election sentiments at the moment. And looking at the performance of the Thailand Stock Exchange, I think the sort of downbeat performance does reflect some uh, indecision, uh, some uncertainty, some form of a de-risking from investors uh, for now. And uh, but I believe that once you know we are able to get a greater clarity on the new leadership and also the formation of the new coalition government, uh, we could potentially see some uh, traction uh, coming back in. Uh, but for now, one, once you know we are we are awaiting further developments on that front, it does seems to be more of a de-risking process in place. Uh, we are seeing a huge net outflows from uh, foreign investors. So it really have to wait for the uh, further positive or political development to sort of leave uh, sentiments in that area. All right. And over now to India, where Delhi is pulling the 2,000 rupee note out of circulation. To put that in context, 2,000 rupees is worth a little more than 30 Singapore dollars. Why is India pulling the 2,000 rupee note? Yes, so uh, when it was first introduced in you know, sort of 2016, I think the introduction was meant to you know, replenish the uh, India's economic currency in circulation quickly, uh, following a move to sort of demonetize the you know, 500 rupee and 1,000 rupee banknotes. So in a way, I think uh, this denomination is not commonly used for transaction. I think uh, largely used as a store of value. Uh, from people. So in a way, I think once it has stabilized, uh, they are turning to sort of uh, remove it uh, from the uh, uh, circulation in the economy, considering that there are also uh, smaller uh, denominations that are able to sustain uh, these uh, supplies. Well, what impact do you think that this move to ban the 2000 rupee note could have on other assets, maybe on India's economy as well? Yes, so for now, I think these uh, 2000 uh, rupee note consists around uh, 10 to 11%. Uh, of this currency in circulation. Mm. Uh, but, you know, some of the guidance that we are seeing is that, you know, withdrawal will not create any big disruption, largely because there are also notes of a smaller quantity that are available in sufficient quantity. And, you know, the 2,000 rupee note has not been commonly uh, used for a transaction. So, in a way, the impact towards the consumer spending, I would say, is uh, limited. Uh, but in a way, I think uh, bank deposits may see some increase. Uh, this comes at a time, you know, especially when deposit growth in India is lagging uh, bank credit growth. So I think, you know, seeing higher bank deposits on that front could actually turn out to be a sort of a positive uh, catalyst. If you're looking at, you know, improved banking system liquidity and inflow deposits into banks. So what this means is that, you know, overall, um, that liquidity is there. So it does suggest that uh, there could be more lending to sort of fill the gap. Mm -hmm. It could be a positive catalyst moving forward. And many of those funds could also sort of get invested in a shorter term government securities as a result. So that could also Mm -hmm. bring down the short term interest rate in the market. So there are some positive flow over from this move. Very interesting. My next question is a big one, Junrong. Uh, may not be fair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Thailand or India, which market do you think will outperform? Yes, so uh, in terms of the economic uh, surprise that we have seen since the start of the year, I would say that India has been coming out very strongly. I mean, if you just look at this uh, economic surprise index, it has actually been outperforming 
uh, way past expectations. So conditions there have been uh, very resilient. We are still seeing a steady and a positive growth in the area compared to the uh, uh, to the rest of the region where you know downside risks are clearly presented in greater scale. So in this way, I will lean towards uh, India at the moment, just based on their you know growth prospect and the stronger economic resilience that we are seeing there. Thank you for that. Time for corporate news. Up or down style. Let me open my up or down books. We started the show off with a tale of two banks. So it's time to put you listeners on the spot as well. Which one do you prefer, DBS or OCBC? Junrong, which bank gets an up in your book? <laughs> I think this will clearly be a difficult choice for many. <laughs> but uh, if I were, were to answer that, you know, I would lean towards uh, DBS. I think largely because, you know, DBS, we are able to see a visible attempt from the bank in terms of its regional presence. We are seeing a series of acquisitions. So in a way, they are deploying their capital to great use to expand our growth across the region to support their earnings moving forward. Whereas for OCBC, definitely they have the ammunition, mm. uh, but it's just really awaiting for that opportunity. And uh, thus far, we haven't seen such aggressive move from them yet in terms of growth prospects. So we will definitely have to await a further move for OCBC to carry you know, greater conviction of their growth moving forward. But also the catch is that, you know, uh, if you look towards an impending rate pause from the Fed, DBS tends to be more sensitive to an interest rate move. So in the event of a rate pause, you know, that could translate to a greater impact on its uh, net interest income as compared to OCBC. Mm-hmm. But overall, on the longer term perspective, you know, based on the regional expansion plans, I will still uh, lean towards DBS. All right, I'll add the contrarian view just for listeners uh, right now. While their businesses appear strong, DBS and OCBC don't appear to be in investors' good graces, at least so far this year. Over the past three months, shares of DBS have been down nearly 12%, OCBC off some 6%. All right, let's move to China chip makers. Junrong, keen to get your view on them. Yes, so I think the whole narrative uh, revolving around uh, chip makers and not just in China, but also U.S. will be the geopolitical uh, tensions uh, between the two uh, economic superpowers. Yeah. And in terms of uh, China uh, chip makers, in a way, this uh, tip for te- uh, tension may, may be expected to be prolonged for longer. Mm. Uh, that could continue to weigh in terms of their demand outlook if we were to see a further uh, decoupling uh, across the region and from major economies. Uh, even though overall, longer term, the shift in uh, dependence uh, may leave its uh, R&D, uh, but eventually, you know, uh, I, I believe that R&D will take time to play out. And it also largely depends on the capacity, whether they can catch up in terms of uh, technology. Uh, but near-term risk, I still see it being presented. So I would say probably it's a down for now. It's a down for now? Yes, it okay. will be a down for now. Got it, got it. Um, yesterday on the show, we talked about how China has labeled the U.S. chipmaker Micron as a major security risk. It is barring a number of companies and agencies from using Micron products. You heard Junrong's view. Uh, some are of the opinion that one company's misfortune is another's opportunity. And some investors think that the call against Micron could be good news for Chinese competitors. Companies like Hua Hong Semiconductor, SMIC, both of which are listed in Hong Kong. So that's another school of thought for you to entertain. And next up, let's look at India's Adani Group, Junrong. Yes, yeah, so that has been the headlines for, you know, being the target of a short seller in the US. Oh, yes. uh, and recently, the positive uh, headlines is that, you know, there is no conclusive uh, evidence, at least for now, uh, in terms of those uh, uh, allegations that is being laid out by the uh, US uh, short sellers. So previously, looking at the current gains, 
uh, I think it's still pale in comparison to its uh, previous, you know, downside losses that was being triggered uh, by that saga. And but I think that once the air is cleared, you know, we could potentially see some, uh, more unwinding of those uh, previous shots that may translate to a, a higher volume move uh, moving forward. And I think, uh, you know, once we are able to see uh, further no signs of uh, any evidence of the allegation, we could see a further recovery on that front. So in this case, uh, there are potential to be up. An Indian court has absolved the Adani group of market manipulation charges. The court ruling appears to resolve the Adani group of charges levelled against it by uh, Hindenburg Research earlier this year. You'll remember Hindenburg accused the Adani group of being, quote, the largest con in corporate history. Well, the Adani group shares rally on the news. They enjoyed their best session yesterday since January. Adani Enterprises surging nearly 20% and the 10 Adani stocks added about 10 billion US dollars to their market value. So that does seem to be an up for Adani. Uh, let's turn now to Meta, Junrong. Yeah, so for uh, Meta, I think the, the, the whole uh, data privacy issue has always been uh, one of the key headwinds that they have to tackle with. Mm-hmm. And recently, we have seen that again. Uh, they are sort of being fined you know, $1.3 billion by the EU for, you know, sort of these uh, data privacy issues, sending user information to the US. Uh, but overall, I think if you are talking about financial fines uh, in general, uh, it's generally deemed to be one-off. So generally, markets can uh, potentially uh, look beyond that. Because, you know, if it's deemed to be one-off, it doesn't weigh on its growth prospect over the longer term. Mm -hmm. The market tends to look beyond that. So we will have to see about that. But for now, it does suggest that there could be some form of a struggling off for now. And uh, in terms of the meta, I think the growth value divide that we are seeing since the start of the year has really been driving a lot of a huge recovery uh, in such uh, big tech companies. And uh, looking at the meta uh, share price chart, I think uh, overall there could be potential for further upside. So I will lean towards uh, up for now. Fantastic. All right, let's look at Ford Motors, Junrong. What is your view? Yes, so for uh, Ford Motors, I think the overall uh, EV competition has been uh, very strong, uh, has been very getting more and more competitive on the front. I mean, we are seeing you know, players such as Tesla, for example, mm. uh, they are actually uh, willing to sort of trade uh, some of their profit margins to boost its uh, top line. So it seems more to be a, a cutthroat a landscape uh, moving from here. And I think the price of competition will continue. And for now, looking at the chart for the uh, Ford Motors, I think it is trying to form a base, uh, but still awaiting the catalyst uh, for a move higher. Uh, but for now, I think uh, there is a lack of catalyst that is playing out for now. So I think it could stay low for longer. Yeah, Ford laid out a vision overnight for how its electric vehicle business would make money. It also announced some key mineral deals to secure the lithium that it needs to make EVs. Investors still sussing out the deals. All said, I think this should be good news for Ford. Ford shares finished marginally lower overnight, but they are now up by about the same amount in after-hours trade. So I'll give Ford an up as well. The uh, Straits Times Index tested support at the 3200 level several times during yesterday's session and in the end that support held the SDI finished up a quarter percent at 32.11 sats was the biggest gainer among the blue chips it jumped more than six percent on the back of a ratings upgrade by dbs singapore airlines finished higher as well this is market view today my guest is yep jun rong market strategist with ig thank you jun rong thank you michelle before acting on the information on money fm 
Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.